What is Maine? Who is Maine? What are the stories of those who have lived here from the beginning, that migrated here, and that continue to inhabit this unique place? Close observers, who through words and images, strive to capture the details in fiction, history, art, and song. These are conversations from the pointed firs, invoking the spirit of place with artists and authors from Maine. I'm Peter Neal, host of Conversations from the Pointed Furs, here on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM. My guest today is Gretchen Legler, the author of Woods Queer, Crafting a Sustainable Rural Life, published by Trinity University Press, an evocative examination of the back-to-the-land experience in Maine with her partner, Ruth Hill. Gretchen's previous publications include On the Ice, an intimate portrait of life at McMurdo Station, and All the Powerful Invisible Things, a sportswoman's notebook. Her work has received two Pushcart Press Prizes, and her essays have appeared in Orion, the Georgia Review, and other magazines and journals. She's a professor of creative writing at the University of Maine Farmington, where she lives. So, Gretchen, welcome to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. We usually start with the existential questions. Who are you? Where did you come from? Well, first, Peter, thank you so much for inviting me to be a guest on Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I love the title. Of course, it invokes Sarah Orrin Jewett, who is a somebody I read when I was in graduate school. Where am I from? I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, at the edge of the Wasatch Mountains in the high desert. And my parents were both from Minnesota. They grew up in Minnesota. And my father's first academic job was at the University of Utah. He was a herpetologist and a, an anatomist. So my, my whole family, my three siblings and I grew up in Salt Lake City, and I, and I loved the desert. Um, but as I got a little bit older, we, we started spending more time in Minnesota. Uh, and I realized that I really liked the moist greenness of Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and it was also very wonderful to be surrounded by all our German and Norwegian and Swedish people, ancestors. And then from uh, Minnesota, I went to school in Minnesota. I went to undergrad in Minnesota and graduate school in Minnesota. And then I, I went to Alaska for my first job at the University of Alaska Anchorage. But I moved back to Maine in the year 2000 with my partner, Ruth. And, you know, I had grown up in the desert, and I love the desert, and I love the West, um, and I still have this space in my heart for those wide, wide open spaces and those mountains. But there was something about Maine that finally called to me as if it could possibly be my home. And I just want to tell a story about that that's in this book, Woods Queer, that I came to Maine to teach at the University of Maine Farmington. And for one year, Ruth and I lived in this old farmhouse, um, 1820s, it was built in the 1820s, in Chesterville, Maine. And the joke is kind of like, where the heck is Chesterville? <laughs> it's one of those Maine towns. So after school, on that first couple weeks of school at this new university, it was still hot. And Ruth and I went down to Egypt Pond to swim and I got into the water 
and I was swimming around and the water was so cool. And people who swim in ponds in Maine know about this. You swim over a cold spot and then you pass over the cold spot and you pass into a warm spot. And there was a loon uh, swimming near me and the loon was calling. And I had this overwhelming sense that I could, I could make this place my home. And I, I can't really explain it other than that, that I just, I felt like Maine was a place that I could settle um, and I, and I wouldn't have to move anywhere else again. Yeah. What a wonderful realization though. Yeah. To find it at last. Yeah. Walking. I mean, you, you covered some ground to get there. Right. <laughs> I mean, Salt Lake City, Minneapolis, Alaska, Maine. Right. But tell me more about this capacity for observation and interest. Your father was a herpetologist. He's a complicated man in the book, uh, but tell me about how he helped shape how you observed things. Yeah, that's a really wonderful invitation. So thank you. Um, I learned so many things from my father. He wasn't, uh, he, he, he liked to give people advice. Uh, the best piece of advice he gave me, or the, 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 one of the most memorable things he said was he said, he was an old, he was an old fashioned scientist. Um, and he said, the best science is done by people who sit still and observe with a notebook and a pair of binoculars. So he was an observer. And, he, and, he, and again, he was, he was old school. He, he did a lot of field work. He collected turtles and snakes and lizards. And, and um, we were able to accompany him on a lot of these collecting missions on these on these field trips to collect and i remember as a young person we used to go to this place called deer creek reservoir in utah and there was a part of the reservoir that had a, a rocky slope and the rocks would warm up late in the morning and this the garter snakes would come out and i don't know why we were collecting them but we would get my father's he had collecting bags that were made out of orange parachute material. My mother had sewed the collecting bags. And we would go around and pick up garter snakes and put them in the collecting bags and then bring them to my father. And then when we were in other places, we would go after lizards and horny toads and all kinds of interesting things. And I guess I'm telling the story just because of the way that I learned from that to look for small things in landscapes. And I learned to not be afraid of other creatures. I learned that other creatures are fascinating. Mm -hmm. And still to this day, my impulse when I see a snake is to want to pick it up rather than to run away from it. But all kinds of things. And then we lived in Australia for a while when my father did some research there on Australian turtles. And we went on collecting trips with him and we would all put on masks and snorkels and fins and go diving in these Australian rivers and look for this particular turtle that I actually have a have an image of in the book. It's called Riodites leucops, which is, a, um, I can't remember if it's a species or not, but it's something that my father is noted for doing a lot of research on. And then my mother was an artist, and she was forever picking up things in the natural world like seed pods and dried stalks of grass and taking them home and doing interesting things with them. And she later on in her life as an artist became a potter and she was interested in finding 
natural deposits of clay to use to make her pots. And she also was interested in making what are called hand-built pots, so not on a wheel, but with rings of clay that are then shaped. And she would she was particularly interested in patterning the outside of the clay pots with natural patterns. It could be um, she might press grass into it or press rope into it or uh, press a particularly interesting weave of cloth into it. So I had these parents who were very creative, both in their own way, and who both paid very close attention to what was going on in the natural world. But you chose not to be a scientist. I wouldn't necessarily say I chose not to be a scientist. I didn't end up a scientist. But one of my dreams as a young person was was to be was to meld my interest in writing and my interest in science, biology, botany, particularly uh, by being a science journalist. And that didn't happen. Yeah, I didn't end up to be a scientist, but I, I think I ended up to be a naturalist. Did you think about being a poet? I've never thought of being a poet. Did you think about being a journalist? I did think about being a journalist. And I have a very funny story about my about my dreams of being a journalist. Ever since I was quite young, I worked on school newspapers. And when I graduated from college, I had been working on the school newspaper in, in college and had some wonderful connections in the Minneapolis and St. Paul newspaper industry. And I was offered uh, a starting position at the Associated Press in Minneapolis. And it was brutal. Mm. It was I was just completely thrown into the deep end full of sharks. Mm. <laughs> and um, I struggled. Uh, mightily. I was put on the night shift with hardly any supervision as a very young person and, you know, all and screwed things up. So anyway, one day I went home from my night shift and what I what I would do when I got home is I would go to the convenience store next to the apartment I had and I would get myself a beer so I could take my beer home and drink my beer and go to sleep. And I remember the guy at the convenience store would look at me when I came in. He'd say, honey, shouldn't you have breakfast first? <laughs> of course, he didn't know that I had just got off the night shift. So I would take my whatever I had written that night at the at the Associated Press office, I would take a copy of home so that after I woke up the next morning, I could read over what I had done and see how great I was. So anyway, I was drinking my beer and going through my the little scraps of paper that I had that of what I had written the, the night before. And one of them said, I had, I had written a story about the Coon Rapids Carp Festival. And it said something like, area cartoonist Dick Gindon, who is famous for his carp cartoons, had a booth at the festival. Um, and I quoted him as saying, crap can be eaten, but it's one thing you should never do. So I had made a typographical error. And what happens with these stories is that they, in that day and age, they got sent over what was called the wire and radio stations would have this, this machine that would spew out copy and they'd rip it. It's called rip and read. So they'd rip it and then they'd read it. And so some radio person had uh, unfortunately read my story that said, area cartoonist Dick Gindon says crap can be eaten, but actually it's one thing you should never do. 
So I'm reading this. Seems like a good lesson in life (laughs) when you think about it. (laughs) Anyway, I got a phone call very soon after that. And said, Gretchen, I'm sorry, your your days at the Associated Press are over. So I had wanted to get into the Associated Press because I wanted to really travel and be a foreign correspondent. That was my, I wanted to be Oriana Falacci, the Italian journalist. Uh, and that didn't happen. So I went on to be, I went on to be a small town newspaper journalist for a while and I freelanced for magazines and um, then I went to graduate school. You know, I also have a night shift story. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, I was sent, uh, there was a sudden explosion in a parking garage and I was sent to cover there had been a death. Oh, no. And I wrote the story, and uh, it was on the front page. It, and uh, there, were, there were two things about this experience. One, I misspelled the name of the victim. And uh, so that was the first thing that convinced me that I was too sloppy to be a mm-hmm. journalist. And the other thing that convinced me was my only person besides the night editor, Bernie Killenberg, who was, who was on with me through the night, was Patrick Buchanan. And he was doing the Wall Street desk across the way. And he and I spent an entire three or four months and we never spoke a word. <laughs> was well, I'm just curious what paper or... St. Louis Globe Democrat. Wonderful. Yeah, well, it didn't, I didn't last very long either. So we have a lot in common. <laughs> anyway, so, so you've discovered yourself as, as a writer, not a journalist. Uh, and you've done two books already. This is your third book. The first one was, uh, was about your experience in the Antarctic. Um, the first book was actually called All the Powerful Invisible Things, A Sportswoman's Notebook. And that was about my some time in Minnesota when I was married to a wonderful man named Craig Bork, who was a photographer for the St. Paul Pioneer Press. And Craig and I started, you know, we started our relationship and had a really wonderful, active outdoor life. He hunted. And so he taught me to hunt. So the book, and he taught me how to forage, how to look for mushrooms. The the hunting motif is pervasive in the book. You still hunt. I still hunt. That's right. That's right. So, yeah. So that book, All the Powerful Invisible Things, and interestingly, the the, the title comes from, I know you're a Barry Lopez fan. Yeah. And that Barry Lopez was very influential in developing my ability to think about the relationship between interior landscapes and exterior landscapes. And he wrote about this uh, myth, this Norse myth about Fenris, the wolf. And there's a passage in that earlier book, All the Powerful Invisible Things, where I quote some from that myth. And the the story goes that when when Fenris is kept in check, so Fenris is like the powerful, violent impulses of human beings and the earth. Fenris is kept in check by all the powerful invisible things. And then there's a list of all the powerful invisible things that are keeping Fenris from being let loose in the world. That was my first book, and it came out just after I finished my graduate work. And then the next one was the book you mentioned about the Antarctic. It's called On the Ice, an intimate portrait of life at McMurdo Station, Antarctica. And I feel very lucky to have been one of the people 
who has been selected over the years for what's called the Antarctic Artists and Writers Program. And I got to go to Antarctica for nine months in 1997, 98, and live there and walk around with a notebook and take pictures and draw. I, I have a series of pastel pieces that I did um, in Antarctica. It's where I met my partner, Ruth. And so that book is partly about my relationship with Ruth and partly about Antarctic exploration, the idea of the, the heroic Antarctic explorer, and partly about culture among the people who work in Antarctica, especially in the U.S. bases there, and partly about science, mm-hmm. how science works. So all these things come together again mm-hmm. in Woods Career. Um, when I read it, I, I sort of teased out three basic themes. One is back to the land. Uh, one is sort of family and interpersonal relationships. And one is crafting a sustainable life in, in many, many different manifestations. And it's all interwoven. Uh, but I can tease them out. And I'd like to take them in order. Okay. Okay. Great. So... I see back to the land in six historical waves. There's indigenous sustenance at the very beginning. There's the colonial garden, which takes over and is still alive and well today. There's industrial agriculture at scale, which affected uh, Maine uh, in an upward trend and a downward trend. There's Scott and Helenearing and the good life, which was the origin and inspiration for many of the back to the landers who live around us here in Maine. There are their successors, Elliot Coleman, also down the road, Mofka, uh, is a is a kind of iteration of that same thing, but a, a second generation. And now there's a third generation of young people coming back and buying small farms and, and renewing them. This is Conversations from the Pointed Furs here on WERU-FM Blue Hill, Maine, and streaming live on WERU.org. I'm speaking today with Gretchen Legler about the wonders of nature, living in rural Maine as a place and time in which to discover self, love, and community. What motivated you and Ruth's choice to come and do specifically this rural life on us uh, and to be self-sustaining, to grow your own food, raise your own animals, and feed your souls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Great question. I love how you put um, and feed your souls at the end there. So I guess this book is really, uh, in some ways, trying to answer that question. So the book is an exploration of those very questions: what motivated us to do this. What were our goals? What did we hope we would get out of it? And um, how did it feed our souls? You know, in some ways, in some ways, the choice was very deliberate. You know, when we moved to Maine, we lived in this old farmhouse for, for just for a year. And Ruth, because I was working full time and Ruth had a little bit more time than I did. And besides, she loves to look for real estate. It's one of her favorite things in the world. She was the one who did most of the research for finding us a home. And we had, you know, we had, we had a a list. We thought, okay, we want something with privacy. We want something where we can have a garden. 
I don't think animals were on on that list, but we wanted privacy. We wanted a garden. We wanted some land. We just knew that these were things we wanted. We didn't want to live in the village or the town of Farmington. So we found this beautiful place, 80 acres of land tucked away in the, you know, the intersection of Wilton J and Chesterville in, uh, on the edge of the Western mountains in Maine. And we saw its potential, you know, very interestingly, the house is a, is a very sweet old Cape. Well, it looks old. It was built in 1978 by a couple who were going back to the land. And it was built using the architectural plans for the Prince House, which was a house in the Plymouth Colony. So it's a very old-fashioned shaped cape with a very steeply pitched roof and very low ceilings and big beams inside. It was is a post and beam house. So we started out, first of all, just remodeling the house. And then we started uh, making a garden plot. And then we made the garden plot bigger. And then we made another garden plot. And then there was a point in time where I just realized that we had the resources, because we had a barn, to have animals. And I really wanted animals. And that's the sort of inexplicable part. It's like, what made, what incited that desire in me for goats, of all things, and chickens? But I think it was a point of time, it was a, it was a time in my life when I was feeling that I needed to be, I, I felt lost. I felt lost. I felt a little broken. And those are some of the things I, I talk about in the book. And how do you find your way? How do you find your way toward wholeness when you feel that way? And for me, the answer to that was land and animals. It's a wonderful, uh, I assume this happens to every back to the lander, is the first, uh, the arrival of the first box of chickens. <laughs> and it's very amusing to hear the, the, your, the passage of your knowledge and experience with chicken, chickens, eggs, uh, and turning the chickens into the pot. Yes. Um, the descriptions of the first uh, decapitations of the chickens and all of that is pretty amusing. Uh, the goats as well. You you upscaled. You went from from smaller things with two legs to larger things with uh, four legs, with much more intelligence in some ways, and and a great deal more aggressive personalities. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Do you yeah. still have the goats? No, we don't. The goats all went for meat. Well, the, here's the story. So I have friendships with lots of people who've written about their life on the land. And one of them is Bob Kimber, who lives in Temple, Maine, and has a lot of wonderful books about living with his wife, his then wife, Rita, on their farm there. And when I first met Bob, I was so excited to ask him for advice. And I said, okay, well, you wrote about sheep. So what's it like having sheep? He said, well, we don't have sheep anymore. Oh, okay. Well, why not? Well, I don't know. We just got tired of having sheep. And I'd say, well, what's it like doing whatever? He said, well, we don't, we don't have geese anymore. Why not? <laughs> so this is one of the problems of being a memoir writer is that you live a life, you 
reflect on that life and then you write about that life and then you move on to another life. So Ruth and I actually have moved on to another life. We actually sold our farm and pretty much gave away our goats. We gave our goats and all of our hay, we had a lot of hay, to a family in Solon, Maine. And I've kept in touch with them and they send me pictures every year when they have baby goats. Um, we gave our chickens away to a colleague of mine. I haven't gotten any reports on the chickens. And we sold our house and our land to a couple who were delighted to be there. And the reason we sold the farm was because I wanted to go to divinity school. And we took stock of how we could make that happen. And the only way we could make that happen, the only feasible way we could make that happen was by selling our farm and taking the proceeds from that so that we could live in Cambridge, Massachusetts for three years without you know, going bankrupt. <laughs> and it was, it was a hard thing to do. Uh, at first, when Ruth said, well, we could sell the farm. And I said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. But it turned out to be what we did. So part of this, that's not in this book. Um, it might be in my next book. I don't know. But I can honestly say that it, it broke my heart to, to, leave, to leave that place and to sell that place. And I have so many wonderful memories of living there and being with the animals and planting fruit trees and, you know, picking our first bushel of apples. And, and it brings me such great joy to remember those things, but it also always breaks my heart a little bit. Well, and if you're going to feed your soul, moving on to divinity school probably is not a bad, bad, bad next step. <laughs> right. Let's go to the next one, though, the, the family and interpersonal relationships, because this book is not a conventional story of living off the grid uh, in Maine. It's, a, it's almost incidental. It's the backdrop in which something else happens, which is very complicated, very intense, very intimate and confessional. Can you talk about that? Because you aired publicly a lot of information about yourself and your relationships and your family. And now that's public record. We've all read about it, Gretchen. And, and yet it, you handle it very beautifully in the way that you in the honesty of your voice and the and the lack of self-consciousness about it, which is great. Can you amplify on that? I mean, there were artistic uh, choices made to do all this. Right. Was that the original impetus of the book to talk about that before and the, the backdrop was just incidental? That's a good question. Well, I, I I'll answer this by saying that I teach... I teach memoir writing at the University of Maine Farmington. I teach nonfiction writing. And as I said before, Barry Lopez was one of the writers who really introduced me to the idea that we, we live in landscapes, but we also have interior landscapes. And I've always been interested in how the exterior landscapes and the interior landscapes intersect with one another. And one of the critiques I've always had of 
conventional nature writing, or even in the case of Antarctica, explorers' narratives, is that there's a lot of attention given to the external, the way that the, the human beings in the story interact with the natural world. But what about the ways that the human beings in those stories interact with each other and with themselves? So again, that the interior landscape is just as complicated and amazing to negotiate and travel as the exterior landscape. And I think that that's been one of the things I've been trying to do with my work, which is all three of these books are about intimate family and personal dynamics, the landscape of the psyche, emotional landscapes, in particular natural settings. It's fascinating to me. So in this case, this book, uh, the subtitle is Crafting a Sustainable Rural Life. And I didn't come up with that subtitle. The publisher did. And I really like it. I like, I like how they did that. And I think about you know, the sustainable life that's being crafted here in the book, or we're attempting to craft as sustainable a life as possible in terms of our use of resources. We had a well, we had solar hot water, we heated our home with what's called a Russian fireplace, we burned three cords of wood a year, we were able to feed ourselves mostly from our own garden and our chickens and goat's milk and cheese and yogurt and goat meat and chicken meat. And then things we foraged, of course, berries and mushrooms and whatnot. So that we were we were attempting to live in closer, I don't know, harmony. We were attempting to live more simply and in closer contact with our food and our sources of energy. And, and not in a prescriptive way. Um, we were not, we're not trying to tell anybody else how to live, but exploring this for ourselves, how that would feel. Well, it's, it's a relationship still with the external world. Right. But then well, there's the other part, right. the so other the, landscape. Right. The other landscape is crafting a sustainable life with yourself and crafting a sustainable life with another person. So what does that mean, a sustainable life with another person? Well, it's a life that you can live together as long, you know, until death do us part. How do you do that? How do you navigate that landscape of somebody else's needs and emotions and your own needs and emotions? One of the themes of the book is this mine and Ruth's relationship, how it began. And um, I talk about how it began, like a lot of people's relationships start like a fairy tale. I mean, we felt so lucky to have found each other in Antarctica at the end of the world. And then we moved to Alaska and then we moved to Alaska and then we moved to Maine and we found this perfect little house. And then something happened. Someone I had known many, many years prior came back into my life and I got involved in an affair. And anybody who's had something like that happens in their lives knows how disruptive it can be and how so much trust gets breached. So all those things happened. And mine and Ruth's relationship uh, could have ended. I mean, all kinds of things could have happened. But we figured out how to sustain it. 
And I mention a friend of mine, her name was Susan Johnson, and she was a sociologist. She was a lesbian, and she wrote a book called Long-Term Lesbian Relationships. No, it's called Staying Power, Long-Term Lesbian Relationships. And after all this research she did, you know, hundreds of informants, she put together this book and she said, the reason lesbian couples stay together is not, you know, the, the difference between the couples who stay together and the couples who don't isn't because they have better sex or they have more money or, you know, any number of other reasons. It's because, or they have less arguments or whatever. They stay together because they made the choice to stay together. So Ruth and I made the choice to stay together. And there's a wonderful turning point in the book where I learned something really important from all of that suffering and pain. And maybe this is one of the th one maybe this is one of the themes of the book is that we learn we learn lessons from suffering and pain. But at the end of all of this, Ruth said to me, "You know, you weren't. I didn't think you were a bad person." You didn't do anything wrong. You were just living in a body. You were just being a human being. So that was one aha moment for me. And the other thing she said is she said, you don't ever have to lie to me. And that felt to me like one of the most, it, it was a, an epiphany. I thought, I don't, I don't have to lie to you. I don't have to pretend to be somebody else. And so that to me was a, was a huge lesson that I learned from all of that pain. It's a really interesting distinction between um, you don't have to lie to me doesn't give you license to do whatever painful thing you're doing. Right. It just means that you have to own up to it and be right. accountable. Right. Exactly. Uh, and that's what, of course, everybody fears is they'll be, they'll be outed, they'll be revealed, mm -hmm. and then there'll be some kind of exterior moral judgment Sides will be chosen. Friends will be gained and lost. I mean, the nightmare of divorce is is you know almost pervasive. Mm -hmm. So yes, you're right. It seems to me the honesty part is is uh, is at the essence. But these were not easy things to do. And and one of the strengths of the book, I felt, is the openness in which you portray your internal debate. I mean, it, it's not just a, a black and white decision. And, and it, what it does also reveal is that not only are the choices complicated, but you discover that you're in some certain place along the way that you haven't learned how to actually make the decisions. Mm -hmm. And that it comes through. There's confusion mm -hmm. in here that is palpable and, and understandable, but it's there and the reader has to, has to deal with it. <laughs> poor reader. <laughs> poor reader. Poor reader. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to just say one more thing about about the intimacy and vulnerability in the book and that, you know, early on in this sort of memoir has has experienced a resurgence of popularity. And probably 20 years ago or so when there were a lot of memoirs being published by women, especially, one of the criticisms of memoir is that it was that it was too confessional. Like, who cares? Like, you know, stop whining, that sort of thing. So there was a, there was a lot of critique about quote unquote, confessing intimate information. And I always had an issue with that 
because I think um, that kind of confession, that kind of putting oneself naked before the reader, writing honestly about what it is like to be a human being is something that's hard for us as a culture. And that doing that well and artfully is actually a radical challenge to people. And in in the classes I teach, I often have students read about Michel de Montaigne, who is a 16th century writer who's regarded as the, quote, father of what we think of as modern personal writing. And one of the quotes that I like to share with students from Montaigne was, he said, I dare to, I dare to write all that I dare to say or do. So he sort of threw down the gauntlet and he wrote some pretty intimate things about himself. So what's the point of doing that? Um, the point is that the stories we share in memoir, in nonfiction personal writing, if they're crafted well, if they have that sense of universality and timelessness, they're not just our stories. They're stories about what it's like to be a human being. And we're all looking for ourselves. We're all looking to understand who we are and how we fit into the larger scheme of things. And if a person can pick up a book and read something that reaches them at their deepest core, and they realize other people have felt that too, then there is a moment when they can feel like they're not alone in the world. And that's a beautiful thing. A very beautiful thing. If you've just joined us, this is Conversations from the Pointed Furs, a monthly interview program here on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM with authors and artists who invoke the spirit of Maine. I'm your host, Peter Neal, and my guest today is Gretchen Legler, writer, teacher, gardener, goat farmer, and acute observer of the natural world that surrounds us here in Maine. But couldn't you say exactly the same thing about a, uh, about a successful novelist? You certainly could. I mean, isn't that what novelists are supposed to be doing? They're supposed to be creating characters that bring all of that same internal confusion and, uh, and destiny. Absolutely. Uh, to life. And so you, you, so Emma Bovary, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or, or whatever, or bodice rippers. I mean, the whole <laughs> right. thing is sort right. of the same in a way, right. but because a good one, uh-huh. a good one uh, gets close to those special kernels inside us, those special pieces inside us that uh, reveal us for who we are. And exactly. we identify with those characters. That is being done in a first person as opposed to an omniscient narrative mm-hmm. um, yeah. is is not too far apart. Right. Well, I think an argument could be made that all art does this in a way. Mm-hmm. It it turns a mirror onto us mm-hmm. and helps us understand ourselves. And and the as Virginia Woolf would say, it helps us understand the patterns behind the cotton wool of daily existence. I don't write fiction. I tried. And it, I, it wasn't as good as my nonfiction. Mm. And so artists choose the genre that works best for them and allows mm. them the most freedom of expression. And this just happens to me, my genre. I tried fiction for myself for a while, and it was very successful for me, for me because I didn't have to actually understand my feelings. I could just project feelings of some sort onto other people. And so therefore, it didn't work. 
That's interesting. You know, I tell my I tell my students a lot. I say, you know, that you don't have to you don't have to end up being a nonfiction writer. But what you're going to learn in this class about yourself and about how to write about yourself and your interior landscape is going to help you when it comes to writing your novel or your short story. So the sustainable life, it's addressed on so many levels, as we've been discussing. There's the there's the skills required, and there, there are many. I, I made a little list of horticulture, goats, pens, woodlock, stoves, uh, pruning, cider making, foraging. And then there's sort of the deeper spiritual levels that draw from more conventional religious ideas. Those are also in there, in a way. Um, there's pantheism. There's Buddhism. Uh, there's modern psychology. And there's sort of the old doctrines of New England self-reliance. Those are all in the book. These are cosmic themes, yet they're dealt with so personally and individually. Uh, and I think that's one of the great, great successes in, in your writing. Thank you. That's beautifully put. Thank you. Well, you've talked about being a writing teacher, and that's a whole other matter, isn't it? Because it is a craft. Uh, it is a self-conscious, it's just like putting together a, a, something that you order online. And it comes with a set of instructions and a bunch of pieces. And some of us can actually put them together and some of us will never be able to. <laughs> How do you deal with that with your students? Do you teach it as a craft or do you teach it as a, a kind of just a voyage of self-discovery? Yeah, I do both. Um, I have used a book for many years by a wonderful writer, memoirist, poet, teacher, Judith Barrington. It's called Writing the Memoir from Truth to Art. And the reason I love this book is because she treats uh, writing the memoir as both a voyage of self-discovery and as a, uh, a collection of craft techniques that one must learn. So I work with students on craft techniques. I think one of the most important things to me is attention to detail, attention to sensory detail. So we do exercise after exercise on, they'll write a paragraph and I'll say, well, are there any smells in here? Are there any colors? Are there any shadows? Is there a quality of light? What's the weather like? What are you feeling on your face? Or what are you seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting? And that's something that I'm very conscious of as a writer. And, and I try to convince students that if you can get this down, the sensory detail thing down, you will be amazed at how much stronger your writing is. So that's one of the, one of the craft techniques I try to teach. And also the technique of moving around in time so that your narratives don't have to start, don't always have to be chronological and they don't have to start at the beginning and go to the end because that's not the way memory works and that's not the way the human mind works. And one of the practitioners of this that I'm really a devotee of is Virginia Woolf. So she's able to move in and out of states of consciousness and states of time and place in such beautiful ways. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a modernist craft technique and sensibility. So those are those are things that I try to teach and I think that and I also try to practice as a writer. And the other thing is that the weaving together of different stories. So uh, we talk about there being an obvious subject and then a deeper subject to every essay. 
at least, at least an obvious subject and a deeper subject. Sometimes there'll be an obvious subject and two or three deeper subjects. So when I talked about timelessness and universality, that's what makes literary nonfiction writing, this having an obvious subject and a deeper subject, different from uh, non-literary nonfiction writing, where you don't need to develop that sense of universality and timelessness, like a newspaper article or a magazine article. Or a biography. Or a biography, right. right. And I love to play with that in my own writing, weaving diff- weaving stories together so that they resonate with one another. So I tried to bile it all down, you know, mm-hmm. like squeezing the, the apples or the syrup and see, see what comes out. And what I came up with in the end as a most the most central cogent theme is isolation. And we're all isolated out in this world, even though we live amongst millions and billions of people. But uh, the metaphors are all there. I made a list of the metaphors. There's, uh, You're such a great reader. <laughs> fences, fences, stone walls, the wealthy apple. It could have been any other apple, but the wealthy apple was important that it was that particular name with all the connotations that had to go along besides the, the apple itself. Uh, there's uh, the acorn. The acorn, you, there's a whole bit on the acorn, which is just fantastic mm-hmm. in the sense of what it is, how it works, and how it exists as a small, tiny seed from which great oaks do grow. <laughs> the uh, internal anguishes, irresolution, these are all things that leave us alone. And uh, as I was reading it, I said, well, these... These are these are the legitimate tropes of a seeker. This is what seekers do. And we're all seekers, right? Don't want to make it sound like it's a bad thing. Seeking is a good thing because it means you're alert and, and active and going someplace, wherever that may be. But, um, you know, minute ass observation, solo exploration, foraging, feeding, in the end, to find what? Yeah, such what? a great question. What'd you find? <laughs> well, I think I found joy. And joy, let's not underrate joy. <laughs> joy is so powerful. And I don't even know how to explain it, but joy, an overwhelming sense of well being, an overwhelming sense of gratitude, an overwhelming sense that one is not alone. Meaning, the way I experience this is that I, I, the goats, the animals, the chickens, the land, my relationship with Ruth, so many other things, so much of the work that I did, the internal work that I did, brought me to this place where I realized that, and, and maybe this is a Jungian thing when you talked about modern psychology, that we have different parts to ourselves, and we all have a highest self that wants to take care of us and speaks wisdom to us. Some people might say that that voice isn't the psyche speaking to us. Some people might say that's God speaking to us or Jesus or Muhammad or whoever speaking to us, some higher power speaking to us. But this this being, this entity loves us and wants us to be happy and content on this earth and not suffer, and to to feel joy. So 
this part of myself, I, 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 in the end of the book, I have a conversation with this self who calls me honey, sweetheart, darling. So I come to this place where I feel, I feel beloved. Um, maybe that's mystic spirituality. Maybe that's, you know, it could, it could be many different things, but that's what I found. But I found myself to be beloved. Be beloved, but to be beloved is, is something that happens to you. But the other side of this is when you beloved back. Mm -hmm. So reciprocity seems to me to be an essential part of joy. Joy is only good enough. It gets better. Joy is great in and of itself, but it gets better when you're joyous with another person or a family or a community or an idea. Those things seem to me um, to be the most redemptive and powerful things that humans can can achieve. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, now, all of this is in this book. You know, I want I want to tell you whether whether it was intended or not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I parsed it out, and uh, it it really did make me think. Not in a way that I didn't thought. I I approached it with a whole series of maybe typical typical, possibly typically male uh, expectations or, you know, oh dear, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, not that at all. Mm -hmm. Very different than that. Mm -hmm. It basically it boils down to sort of one person wrestling with the human experience, which mm -hmm. is which is devoutly uh, to be wished. Um, I just want to come back to the divinity school because well, I'd like to hear about what happened <laughs> and what did you find a... Um, a purpose? Are you a pastor? I am not a pastor, and I don't know that I ever will be a pastor. And I don't know that I went to divinity school with that in mind. Certainly some of the people I was studying with were headed into positions of authority in churches. They wanted to be pastors or um, other members of church communities. Some of them were on their way to law school and medical school, and but they wanted to do this. Some of them were on their ways to PhDs in the study of religion. What I found, you know, this is this is the the sort of trick of our lives, right? I thought I was going to divinity school to find I find something, okay, that, that was out there somewhere. A seeking. A seeking, right? And what I found was that what I was seeking had been in me and in my life all along. So it ended up that practically every assignment I did in divinity school had to do with learning about the natural world and loving the natural world, writing about the natural world, thinking about other people's connections to the natural world, thinking about how to inspire love for the natural world and other people. So we would joke in divinity school about ministry. You know, what's your ministry going to be? And one day I ran across somebody carrying a pizza across campus. <laughs> and she said, it's my pizza ministry. <laughs> so yeah. when I came back to Farmington after three years in divinity school, I became uh, one of a group of faculty members who gave the final push to everything that had been lined up to get a campus garden started on the University of Maine, Farmington campus. And so we've had this garden for two years and we've been growing organic vegetables. We planted a pollinator garden. Students do all the work. They start the seeds, they plant, they nurture, water, harvest, bring the harvest to local food pantries. 
And I realized that, you know, then you look back on, you know, how did I get here? And you see, it's no mystery. This was all, everything was in place for this exact thing to happen, right? And it was actually after the 2016 election in the U.S. when I was sort of like a lot of other people at a very, very low place and wondering, what can I possibly do to contribute to making this world a better place? My answer was to go to divinity school. I don't know, you know, what that would solve. But it turns out that it opened my eyes to the fact that my ministry is inspiring love for the natural world in this and in the next generation. And, um, you know, that, again, that that lines up with everything that I've been doing for all of my life. In the next generation. In the next generation. Interesting. Yeah. Because isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? This is what parents do. This is what ministers do. This is what friends do, uh, uncles and mentors. Basically, they're working to shape the next generation with a value set. Yeah. If I were to boil it all down, and I've, I'm trying, <laughs> uh, I, I want to reduce it to one of, one of your phrases, which struck me right between the eyes. And it's something that uh, made me think a great deal. And the phrase is, and this, this could be, you know, the, the word sustainability now is just trivialized. It's become, it's just become almost meaningless. Nobody really understands what it's supposed to be. I stopped trying to, I stopped using it. Every time I catch it, I put the word in as an adjective or as a noun, I say, uh-uh, take it out, take it out, take it out. But the phrase that you use here is to live in accordance. And boy, that just got me. That said to me, isn't that exactly what it is? Accordance. What's it mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What does it mean to live in, in accordance? accordance? I think um, if I remember to live in accordance with what is, right? When I, when I think of that term, to live in accordance with what is, I think about how, you know, and this is a, a Buddhist concept, one of the things the Buddha said was that suffering in our human lives comes from grasping and clinging, grasping for things you don't have or clinging to things that you once had or clinging to comfort instead of letting go and grasping for what you think you don't have. So the Buddhist idea of understanding reality, understanding what is, right? And then learning how to live with what is, is I think one of the secrets. I mean, that's what sustainability is. Yeah. What, how, what are your resources and how can you live this is borrowing from the nearings. How can you live sanely and simply with the resources you have instead of instead of wanting more? And this is, of course, this wanting more is the problem of capitalism. Mm. Well, but but we can all want more anyway, mm -hmm. capitalists or not. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I I actually dropped with what is because with huh. what is basically takes you to a tumultuous 
context in which you're already at sea. Mm-hmm. But to live in accordance says that you're in accord. You're in accord with your lover. You're in accord with your parents who did the best they could. And some of them did it very well and got no thanks. And others did it really badly and are hated for it for the rest of our lives. Um, you're living in accordance with values. You're living in accordance with your community. You're living in accordance. So that you're sitting there saying you're not, you're not whining. You're not being aggressive. But you're essentially being a kind of model, a presence of peace and harmony. And that's a, that's a t- tool of reciprocity. You're giving back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's a ministry. Mm-hmm. It is a ministry. You put that so well. I've been thinking about going, going to Harvard Divinity School. Have you really? Yeah, I think it would be a great idea. Why don't you? No, I'm, I'm too old for oh. Divinity School. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a one of the great things about doing this is to meet people that you've never met before, understand what they're up to, and having a, a splendid conversation, sharing it with other people in the ether. And I really want to thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. And great. Yeah. Well, thank you, Peter. I, I completely agree. I was very excited not just to learn about this podcast that you do, which is so important to have people paying attention to Maine writers, but to learn a little bit about you and all the things we have in common and who wouldn't be thrilled to come and have a conversation with an excellent reader about their work. So thank you so much. The um, Well, this is the spirit of Maine. <laughs> We've right. captured it here in one hour of lovely conversation yeah. uh, among the pointed first. Thank yeah. you, Gretchen. Thank you. My guest today has been Gretchen Legler, the author of Woods Queer, Crafting a Sustainable Rural Life, published by Trinity University Press, an evocative examination of the back-to-the-land experience in Maine with her partner, Ruth Hill, My guest next time will be Julia Boozma, the new Poet Laureate of Maine, to discuss Midden, her remarkable award-winning book of poems published in 2019 by Fordham University Press that narrates the early 20th century history of Malaga Island, located in Casco Bay. We will continue to explore even the dark side of the spirit of Maine. I'm Peter Neal. Thanks for listening.